let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Kings chapter 12. And it's good to be back here this evening. 1 Kings chapter 12 is where we are. And uh, we finally have passed 1 Kings 11. And uh, we, we wrapped up that disastrous chapter last week. And remember, that whole, uh, the whole chapter was really about uh, Solomon, how he turned his heart away from God, and about how he chased after idols. And we saw how he tried to kill Jeroboam. But now, here we are entering into chapter 12, and he has died. And remember the Lord, he promised a coming split for these 12 tribes uh, when Solomon died. And now the stage is being set for all of that to go down. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 12 of 1 Kings and start with verse 1. Look at what it says. It says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were to come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he uh, was fled from the presence of King Solomon. And Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, and then come again to me. And thy people, the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye, that we may answer this people, who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter? And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make it thou lighter unto us. Thou shalt, uh, thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did lay you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam, the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made our yokes heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake, by Hijah, the Shilonite, unto Jer Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is relevant, and it's always relevant, Lord. The Old and the New Testament, I thank you that we can come to your house, and that we can learn from it. And I pray, Lord, that you'll just help us to see the truth that you'd have us see this evening. I pray that you'll help it to be an encouragement to us, but also a challenge, Lord, to trust in you and to know uh, that you and that your will and your word will be accomplished, Lord, no matter what it is. And we thank you, Lord, that you are God. We thank you that you are on the throne and that you are in control. I pray that you just teach us what we need to know tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for giving your word to us. And we thank you for the book of 1 Kings, Lord. And we love you and thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, it was, uh, it was Charles Spurgeon that once said that there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. He said, under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, God's children believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions and that sovereignty overrules them, that sovereignty will sanctify them all. And he says that there is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly contend to than the doctrine that their master is over all creation. Now, we find in this passage God's sovereignty on just really prominently on display in this text, from verses 1 to 15. Now, this, we, we know that the, the foolishness of man, it is on display as well. That it is, uh, the, the passage here is full of man's folly, specifically Rehoboam's. Uh, but while many people, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll make that the focus of the passage, that's not the focus of the passage. And a lot of times I've heard uh, sermons preached on this passage, and uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, it's, it's all about the making sure that you, you, you follow wise counsel. You look to godly counsel and don't, don't listen to your peers. Don't listen to your friends, but listen to the, the older people. And while that's a, a good principle, that's not the focus of the passage. And, you know, anytime uh, I go to a, a, a text and I, I, I'm studying, I always look at the passage and I say to myself, what is this saying? What are, we, what are we to learn from this? What is the author, the writer of this trying to say? What is God trying to say? Right? That's, and that's a good thing to do. That's what we should always do when we're reading the Word of God every day. Uh, we should say, okay, what is God trying to say? What is the application? But we need to understand that the, these verses here, that whole passage, it's not about man. The focus is not on man. It's not uh, on the importance of listening to older and wiser people above our peers. The focus is actually on God. The focus is on the sovereignty of God. The focus is on the fact that God's will and His word will be accomplished no matter what foolish men do. That's the focus. And that's what we're going to see tonight. And it's my prayer that as we examine these 15 verses, that every saint here that may be struggling with circumstances or difficulties or trials of life, it's my prayer that you would find comfort in this. And I know that there are many people here and even people that maybe are watching online that are not here. There are people in our church that are going through some hard times. There's just situations in your life where you just don't understand why it's happening. And there are people that may feel that they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I, again, I know that there are people in this room right now where you're going through some things uh, but it's my prayer that you will be comforted by what we see. But really, it's my prayer also that everybody here would find comfort in the fact that God is worthy of our trust because of the fact that He has everything handled. He is in control. So whether you need to trust God as you see all the evil in this world, or in our nation, or in our state, or in your own everyday life, I want you to know we have hope. Even when it looks like things are out of control, we can take comfort in the fact that behind it all, behind the scenes, God, He has not given up His throne. He's not given it up. He's not surrendered His authority. In mysterious ways, God works all things according to His sovereign plan. And, and that's what we're going to see tonight. But all, over the next several weeks, as we go from chapter 12 to 14, we're going to see that this portion of Scripture really has it all. It has 
politics, it has stonings, it has murders, it has men of God, it has false prophets, it has manipulation and deceit, it has fear, it has faith, it has disease, it has death, and it even has a man getting killed by a lion. So there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in these two chapters, uh, but through it all, God works. Through it all, uh, God is behind the scenes, and, and it's interesting, many people, they know very little about the remainder of this, of this book. Uh, when you go from uh, chapter 12 on, or even really chapter 13 on, there's a lot of uh, people, even Christians, that do not know a lot about it. But as I say often, it is going to be beneficial. The Old Testament is here for our prophet. So uh, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 12. Look at verse 1, and we're just going to run down through here and go over some things. Look what it says in verse 1. It says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were to come to Shechem to make him king. So we know... That Solomon, he's died. His, his life is over. And we know also that from previous passages that, that Solomon, he had a lot of wives, didn't he? He had a lot of wives. He had a lot of concubines. And yet, despite that, this son, Rehoboam, is the only one the Bible ever mentions. It's the only, he's the only one. And, and no doubt, Solomon knew that his son, Rehoboam, would take over for him one day as king. And no doubt, he would give him much wisdom and, and much advice and specifically in the book of proverbs now we know the book of proverbs is really uh, a book full of godly wisdom both for young and old right and a lot of times it addresses the young men but a lot of the things that are addressed to the young men are good for the old men too right uh the, the that book has a lot of good wisdom in it but it also has a royal dimension to it i'm not going to go there but if you were to go to chapter 20 specifically you would see that solomon writes uh, a lot about uh, how the, how the king should behave, what the king should do, how he should behave wisely and strive to be holy. Uh, and we know that he unfortunately did not take uh, his own advice in that later on in his life. Uh, but Rehoboam, like his father, he would reject wisdom. He would reject instruction. And he would do so to his own destruction. Look at verse 2 of 1 Kings 12. It says, And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in, in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. Now, remember, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. So what did he do? He fled to Egypt. He ran. Why? Because God promised both to Solomon and to Jeroboam, the tribes are going to split. And when the tribes split, Jeroboam is going to take over ten tribes and be the king. So again, I, I want to look at this, that promise, uh, go back a chapter. This is really key to understanding this whole text. Uh, looking and understanding ch chapter 11, verse 31 is key to understanding uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1 to 15. Look at uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 31. It says this, and we've already gone over this, but it says this, and he said to Jeroboam, and remember it was Ahijah, the, the prophet, he said this, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to thee. So, God promised Jeroboam that he would reign over the ten tribes. And because of that, Solomon tried to kill him. He tried to take matters into his own hands. He tried to stop God from doing what uh, he was going to do. Look at 1 Kings 11, verse 40. 
It tells us that. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. Okay, so uh, we know that, that that's exactly what happened. So Solomon, though, he died. He passed on. So now it was safe for Jeroboam to return to his home. And the, these tribes, these ten tribes, they summoned Jeroboam to come back. And they did this because they wanted him to be their spokesperson. They wanted him to be their spokesperson to the king and so that he was the one that was dealing with him. Now, this whole, all that I'm going through is just setting something up here, so please bear with me. These ten tribes, all the tribes except for Judah and Benjamin, they wanted Jeroboam to represent them on their behalf in the dealings with King Rehoboam. So, so here's what I want you to understand here. Can you see how God's plan is unfolding? You see how the hand of God is working behind the scenes to accomplish what he promised in the split of the kingdom. You see how uh, by doing this, by having the ten tribes go to Jeroboam and ask him to represent them, you can see how God was working behind the scenes to do what he said in verse 35 of 1 Kings 11 when he said, I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and I will give it to you, even ten tribes. So, Jeroboam, what does he do? He accepts a call. And he goes to the king and he explains that uh, Solomon, your, his father, had made the Israelites yoke grievous. This means that the, the burden that was on the Israelites was very heavy. Now we know that life as an Israelite was good, right? It was peaceful. It was beneficial. Uh, they, the Bible often uses proverbial, proverbial images to uh, speak to that fact. But while it was a good life as an Israelite, there was a burden that came with it. Uh, the, this grievous yoke is in reference to heavy taxing and a heavy workload. Okay, so again, life was good as an Israelite, but they had to work hard for it. Life was good as an Israelite, but they had to pay a lot of taxes for it. And I want to look at that. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 4, and we'll see here. Uh, just gives us a picture of how much the taxes, how much taxes Israelites probably had to, had to pay and had to deal with. You know, and we know this in our day, when you have nice things, somebody has to pay for it, right? <laughs> it's, you don't just get it for free. Look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22. It says in verse 22 here, And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour, and three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 oxen out of the pastures, and 100 sheep beside the hearts, and roebucks, and fallow deer, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tisva even to Azza over the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on all sides right about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers provided victual for the king Solomon and for all that came on the king Solomon's table, every man in his month, they lacked nothing. Barley also and straw for the horses and uh, dromedaries brought they unto the place where the officers were, every man according to his charge. So there's a lot of things going on here. You can imagine how much, uh, how much was needed for the kingdom to function properly. Okay, So we see this. So just imagine uh, the tax rate for the Israelites, what it must have been. In order to run such an extravagant kingdom, each Israelite would have to contribute. And then you couple that with uh, the fact that uh, all that would come for all the building projects that Solomon would, would have, right? I mean, he was always building something. He was always doing something. Uh, so that also speaks to his workload that he gave the Israelites. Go to 1 Kings 5 and look at verse 13. So the, 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 the yoke was grievous in, as far as taxes, but also the workload. Look at verse 13. 
It says, And King Solomon raised a levy out of all Israel, and the levy was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month, by courses, a month they were in Lebanon, and two months at home. And Adiram was over the levy. And Solomon had three score and ten thousand that bear burdens, and four score thousand hewers in the mountains, beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, three thousand and three hundred which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builder and Hiram's builder did hew them and the stone quarters, so they prepared timber and stones to build the house. So this is, of course, the building of the temple. But Solomon, he was always doing this. He was always building. He was always constructing. He was always advancing. And Solomon truly did ask for a lot of the Israelites when it came to taxes and service. But the Bible, it does not indicate that the Israelites obeyed him out of fear. Uh, it, it seems that the Israelites had a shared vision and a shared purpose in what they did. It seemed like they were willing to sacrifice for the betterment of the kingdom and for the betterment of the land for a time. But Jeroboam and the people wanted to have a break. You, know, you could imagine it would be like a group of employees that maybe they, in the beginning of a company, as it's starting out, they may be willing to work longer hours and to work extra hard so that that business can get going. But at some point, they're going to want a break, right? They're not going to want to go at 110% nonstop, seven days a week, all the time. So that's kind of like what was happening here. They, they asked Rehoboam to lighten the load. They asked him, please do not be as much of a task enforcer as your father. And if he were to listen, then the ten tribes that Jeroboam was representing, uh, representing said that they would stay with him and serve him. So let's go back or go forward to 1 Kings 12 again. Look at verse 4 again. Look at verse 4. It says, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter and we will serve thee. Now I want you to notice that Jeroboam says that. Look again. The last part there. It says here. It says he put upon us lighter and he says and we will serve thee. That phrase, I want you to understand this church. That phrase indicates that if, they did, if Rehoboam did not adhere to their request, they wouldn't serve him. Okay? It says, if you do this, then we will serve you. So, so it's really, again, it's indicating, okay, if he doesn't, if you don't, then we're not going to serve you anymore. Again, God's plan is unfolding, just like he said, in all of this. Look at verse 5. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, and come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father, while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this, this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. So, Rehoboam says, Okay, come back to me in three days. And I'm going to consider, and I'm going to consult people, uh, so I can figure out what to do. And he seemingly, seemingly, very wisely, goes to the older people, the elders, the officials that were with Solomon. And as he goes to these older men, he advised them, the older men, they advised him to serve the people instead of making them serve him so harshly. They encouraged him to speak in a favorable manner, to show grace by lightening the people's burden. But what Rehoboam did here was not at all wise. He was not actually going to the older men to gain from them. 
Instead, he was really just advice shopping. And what I mean by that was he was taking, uh, he was going to different people, talking to different people, trying to get advice until he found somebody that would tell him what he wanted to hear. And this, church, listen, this is a very bad way to get counsel. This is an unwise way to get counsel. It's an ungodly way to get counsel. If you want counsel, don't just go looking for somebody that's going to agree with what you want to do anyway. Okay? Seek godly counsel and be open to it. Now, all of us here probably have gone to somebody before, or rather somebody's gone to us and talked to us about something, and their mind is already made up about what they were going to do. And in that case, it doesn't matter what you say. And that's what happened with Rehoboam. He had his mind made up. He knew what he was going to do. Uh, he, he could have just told him at the, the Jeroboam and the tribe right there, right then and there, the answer, uh, because nothing that the older men said would make a difference. So he decided to, instead of listening to the older men, I'm just going to go and go to people that are like me. I'm going to go to my peers. I'm going to go to people that want me, that are going to tell me what I want to hear. And again, this too is bringing about God's plan together. It's, it's bringing about God's promise to Jeroboam. And God would use the free will and the choices of Rehoboam and his peers to continue the work behind the scenes to bring about his promise. Somehow, God was working all of this out to fulfill his plan and his word. Look at verse 8. Rehoboam, what did he do? He forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him, and he said unto them, What counsel give ye, that we may answer this people, who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter? And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto the, this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did lay you with heavy, a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So, instead of listening to the older man, what does Rehoboam do? He, he, he forsakes the, the wiser and the sensible man that said, Hey, just lighten the load of the Israelites. And he decides to listen to the younger men that were his friends, that were his peers, that he grew up with, and they gave him terrible advice. They said, no, 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 don't lighten the load, make it even worse. Don't lighten the load, make it even heavier. As if to say, you know, to the Israelites, uh, hey, you thought my dad was tough? You thought my dad was uh, somebody that, you know, uh, was a hard master? You just wait to see what I can do. You just wait to see how tough I am. It was as if they wanted Rehoboam to show them who was boss and set a disastrous tone for his reign. And unfortunately, this is exactly what Rehoboam would do. Look at verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed him, uh, appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So the third day, the ten tribes, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they get all together, and instead of Rehoboam speaking good words, as advised by the older men, he spoke rough words. He, he spoke harsh words. Instead of lightening their load, he said he will, in fact, add to it. Instead of punishing the rebellious with whips, he said that he would punish them with whips, in essence, like barbed wire. 
And with these words, you can re- almost you can almost hear the kingdom being torn apart, can't you? You can almost hear the kingdom being shredded. It, Rehoboam, he was dead set on being a terrible king that cared little for the people and only cared for power. But because of this, he would lose power. And again, all of this was setting the stage for Jeroboam to take over the ten tribes. All of these parts were moving to see to it that the nation uh, would split. And the writer makes this very clear as he tells us that all of these things came to pass for one purpose. And that purpose was for God to be able to carry out his word. Look at verse 15. Wherefore, the king hearkened not unto the people, and look what it says, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Hijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So, why did Rehoboam decide to do things this way? Why did he not listen to the people? Why did he not listen to the older men? Why did he reject sound wisdom? I'll tell you why, so that God could do what he said he was going to do. The kingdom was to split, and God was keeping his word. So the king hearkened not to the people, because the Lord was seeing to it that he kept his word. He saw to it that his, the, the promise made to Jeroboam concerning the, the coming split would come to pass. And, and really, the words of Solomon ring true in regards to this in Proverbs 21. Let's go there, Proverbs 21. Solomon wrote these words, and this is so true. And it speaks to the situation that we're looking at here in 1 Kings. Proverbs 21, look at verse 1. He says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now, in this day, kings possess absolute authority. They were often considered to be like gods. But in that verse, it shows that God is the one that has ultimate authority. He reigns and rules over every king, over every leader. And even though evil leaders may not realize it, the earth's most powerful kings, they have always been under God's control. And listen, you may may see the most wicked president and the most wicked ruler uh, uh, in, in the world. You can look at any ruler and you can know. God is reigning over them. Now, in all of this, God did not violate Rehoboam's will. Rehoboam did make his own decision. But God used his decision and this event to accomplish his coming, his purpose that was to come. Now, you may wonder, well, how can this be? Uh, how does God work his will and work man's responsibility uh, and his plan in such a way? How do they work together? Now, if you were here when we looked at theology several weeks ago, and we were talking about the free will of man and the sovereignty of God, you know that the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know how God's sovereignty and his plan work together with uh, man's responsibility, but I do know that it does. Okay, The Bible makes it clear. The Bible teaches this to be true. And, And as one pastor said, and trying to figure out God is like trying to catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. You cannot do it. It's impossible. Hey, we all know that his ways are not our ways. Uh, he, his mind is beyond our mind. But in this, we do understand God has all things under control. In this, we do see that God is working behind the scenes to keep his word. We see 
God's hand was moving to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to Jeroboam that these tribes were going to split. So think about it, okay? Let's, let's just take a minute to kind of review and see how God was working behind the scenes. In 1 Kings 11, God promised Solomon and Jeroboam himself, okay, these ten tribes are going to split. So, uh, and Jeroboam, he was going to become the king of these tribes. So guess what happened? Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam. And guess what? God's sovereign hand gave him protection and shelter in Egypt. Okay? After Solomon died, God's sovereign hand took part in those ten tribes going to Jeroboam and finding him so that he could be their spokesperson to the king. As uh, Jeroboam spoke to Rehoboam, God's sovereign hand took part in Jeroboam giving him that stipulation, which was in essence, make our yoke lighter and we will serve you. Again, indicating if he did not, then they would not serve him. God's sovereign hand took part in Rehoboam rejecting the counsel of the older men and the desire of the people in order to cause the coming split of the kingdom. So again, through it all, we see how beautifully the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are working together. Even in the midst of God's, in, in, even in the midst of man's foolishness, even in the midst of rebellion, and in the midst of sin, God's will always comes to pass. The Bible teaches this very clearly. Nothing can stop God's will from coming to pass. God, nothing can stop God's plan from coming to pass. And by the way, even the most evil of evils cannot stop God's will from happening. The, the Bible teaches us, and in, in, this truth from the prophet Isaiah, he teaches us that, you know, God can use, and he does use, the wickedness of man to accomplish his will. Uh, the prophet Isaiah teaches this truth as he uh, talks about how God punished the Israelites for their idolatry. And I want to look at that. Go to Isaiah chapter 10. It tells us that. Now, we could read the whole chapter here and really speak to the entire scope of this event, but I just want to read a few verses to show you this, okay? Now, the Israelites, they were in idolatry. And by the way, we know that when people are in idolatry, God's not happy about it. The Israelites were in idolatry, so he was going to use the Assyrians, who, by the way, were even worse idolaters than the Israelites. He was going to use them to punish Israel. So look at <clears throat> Isaiah 10, verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, and to take the prey, and to tread them down like mire in the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. This is really interesting, because verse 5 there, God says that he, he was going to use the Assyrians as the rod of his anger against the Israelites. He was going to use them to punish the idolatry of his people. And one writer said of this that God used the Assyrians as the paddle to discipline his children. And that's exactly what was happening. As he said, you are, the, you are going to be the rod of correction. So he was going to use these evil men to accomplish his will. Now, the Assyrians, they were evil, and again, they were probably worse idolaters than the Israelites, but God was going to use those evil people to punish the Israelites, to, uh, to accomplish his will. But they made this choice on their own. But notice what it says in verse 7. Look what it says in the beginning there. How be it, he meaneth not so. That's interesting. What is that saying? He's telling us that the Assyrians did not even realize that they were going to be used as instruments of God. 
they were just doing what they desired to do, but they were playing right into God's hands. They, they weren't intending to do God's will, but that's exactly what they were doing. <clears throat> and in this, again, we see God's working behind the scenes in order to bring about his will to keep his word and do what he wants to do. Now, we also, church, we also see the same dynamic with the cross. The cross that Christ suffered on. You know, even in the midst of a terrible betrayal, an unlawful arrest, and false accusations, God was working behind the scenes to bring about his will of having Christ be the propitiation for our sins. God was working behind the scenes to see to it that Christ would be slain so that we could have eternal life. From the anger and the outrage of the Pharisees, to the conspiring and the planning against him, to Judas selling out Christ for 30 pieces of silver, to the Romans nailing Christ to that cross, God used those evil men and their evil ways and their evil desires to accomplish his will. And Peter, he actually spoke of this truth when he preached at Pentecost. Let's go and look at that in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And look at verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It speaks of Christ here. And well, let's look at verse. Let's look at verse 21. As he, as he preached, he said in verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Look what it says. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Okay, so look. You remember, if you, you remember in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he often predicted of Christ's death to come, he actually said this, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was uh, brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And that's exactly what would happen. And he used, Peter's telling us here, he, God used the evil and the hatred and the wicked and hard hearts of men to bring this about. In the midst of what seemed to be godlessness and just unholiness and terrible people that were just haters of God, a God was working in all of it to bring us redemption. As terrible as all of this seemed to be, it was all of God. I want you to understand this evening. Sometimes we get this, we get this mixed up. Christ was not a victim of unfortunate circumstances. But rather, he was a willing victor that was brought here to bring us redemption and forgiveness from sin. He delivered himself to evil men so that he could bridge the gap and bring us to God. He made the plan that involved these evil men to bring us redemption. It's really such a mind-boggling thought that he did all of that so that we could be saved. So consider tonight, have you got this redemption? Have you trusted in Christ for this salvation? Now, we see all this. Okay, we see God working in 1 Kings to, to split the, the 12 tribes. We see uh, the fact that, that 
God even used idolatry to accomplish his will, to punish the Israelites. We see that God uh, even used the evil of man to bring about the, the redemption of man uh, so that we could have eternal life. But we know because of this, in, in all things, in all events, in all stages of life, in all problems, listen church, God is there. God is moving. God is working. God is in control. In all things, God's will and his word will be accomplished, and nothing and no one can stop it. Evil and problems and issues and oppressors and godless people are often used as tools to bring about the will of God. And this right there, that should just encourage us to know that no matter how bad things get on earth, God's still in control. No matter how rampant sin gets, God will still reign. No matter how evil men are, God will forever be seated on his heavenly throne. No matter how terrible and how ugly things may seem to be, he will make all things beautiful in his time. He tells us in 1 Kings, this cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying. Now, there's of course a practical application to this. And again, I, know, I said I, in the beginning, I know that some people are going through a lot of hard times. Listen, whatever is happening in your life, you can be comforted in knowing that God knows all about it. He is with you in it. He says, lo, I am with you always. And as he's with you, he can use every situation to bring himself glory. And ultimately, everything will work out in the end to bring about his intended purpose. And again, I can't explain it. I, I don't know how he does it, but I know he does it. I know that he will. In all things, we can and we must trust him. In every circumstance, we must trust him. Because God will work out his will even in your life no matter what is happening. He will work all things together for his good no matter what you are facing. You just need to trust him. You need to be humble enough to trust God. And stop trying to figure everything out. Look, we can trust God in everything. If God can do all of if he can work behind the scenes to make all these things happen, then tell me, how, how could we say that he can't work in our situation? How can we say that uh, he doesn't got uh, our life figured out? We can trust him in all times. We can trust him in times of difficulty. You know, you can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. Listen, you can choose to trust God even if the worst circumstances come your way. You can decide to trust him even if his hands lead you to your death. You can trust him. You can trust him when things don't happen on your timetable. Now, uh, a lot of us here today, we're not very patient people. We like things to happen now, right? On the way over here, this evening actually, I was uh, trying to get the kids in the car, and I tried to get over here to prepare uh, a little bit extra before, <laughs> before we go, and I was telling the kids, come on, let's go, hurry up. And they said, they started whispering to each other, and I said, what are you whispering about? And then they said, well, we were just talking about how you're not very patient. <laughs> Well, that happens, right? Like, and I said, well, there you go. Now you know daddy's a sinner too, right? So, uh, and we talk about that during devotions. But look, we can trust God even when he does not do things on our timetable. Psalm chapter 37, verse 3 and verse 7 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Look, you may want certain things to happen in a certain way, in a certain timetable. Listen, just wait on God. Just trust him. Just trust him. You can trust him even if he doesn't work things out in your timetable. And you can also trust him when you lack peace. 
Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 and 4. I love that passage. It says, I will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Look, the circumstances of your life, right now it may cause you to feel like everything's spinning out of control, or like you're just on ever-shifting sand. But look, if you're a child of God, I want you to know you're standing on the rock of your salvation. Stay your mind on Him. Know that God is in control. Only trust in Him. We can always trust Him. And each of us in every area, we must humble ourselves before God and trust Him in every circumstance of life. In every aspect of God's Word, we can cling to the promises that He's made. And God's made a lot of promises in the Bible, hasn't He? I like that, what he says in Ezekiel 24. The Bible says, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and it shall come to pass. And I will do it. I will not go back. So we can cling to that truth. Uh, anytime we may be going through an issue where, where we're having a hard time trusting, we can know that he will, he will uh, follow through with his promises. And in times where we may lack faith due to circumstances that are around us, you can know that God's always working behind the scenes. He will do everything for his good and for his glory. And that peace, that right there is the peace of God that, give, that passes all understanding, right? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now a lot of times Christians will take that verse and they'll say, Well, everything's going to work together for my good. I'm going to be financially stable. I'm going to be all set. I'm going to have good health. No, no, no. It says, For all who are called according to his purpose. Hey, listen, his purpose might be for you to suffer. Let's just, let's just be honest about that, okay? It's not God's will for everybody to have millions of dollars and a nice home and uh, to have great health and a great life. Sometimes God's will is for you to suffer. And 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about it. In God's providence, he orchestrates every event in our life to bring glory to him and his hand is even in our suffering. His hand is even in our temptation so that we can accomplish uh, His purpose. And we know that, that nothing can compete with God's rule and His reign. Nothing can contend with it. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop Him from being faithful to His will and His word. Now, in the very end, when it's all said and done, when, when life is over, one day we know that no matter how foolish and evil things get, in the end, God is going to reign and rule forevermore. Right? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 tells us, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. He is going to reign forever. All that have rebelled against him, they're going to pay for what they've done. And Mike actually mentioned that this morning in Sunday school. God is going to bring vengeance on all men, and nothing will be hid. All things are going to be revealed. He's going to right every wrong. He will make all things new. And, and one day, he's going to have complete and utter dominion over sin, death, and hell. He's going to reign and rule over it all. So we can take comfort in that to know that one day, God's going to fix everything. Listen, there's no politician that's going to fix everything. And I know sometimes we, we put a little bit too much stock in politicians. Only God can fix everything. And one day, he's going to fix everything. But in the meantime... While things in this world are happening that are really beyond our understanding, we can know God is working behind the scenes to accomplish His will. A.W. Pink 
said this. He said, God is working out his eternal purpose, not only in spite of human and satanic opposition, but by means of them. He used the foolishness of Rehoboam to bring about his plan for the coming split of the kingdom. He can use the evil and the troubles of your trial and your problems to bring about his plan. He can use the seemingly impossible circumstances in your life to accomplish his divine will. He can use the evil even in our own nation to accomplish his will. And you look at all the, and I kind of mentioned this morning, you look at the godless agenda that people are pushing. I mean, just, and I mentioned these things often, but the murder of unborn babies, the, the LGBTQ agenda, the transgenderism, they're pushing that on us. Listen, I don't know how, but God can use that to accomplish his will. Okay? And again, in the end, God's going to make all things right. He can use the evil in our, in our nation to accomplish his will. So don't fear May our mindset be that of David. He said this in Psalm 56 verse 4. He said, In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Hey, listen, praise God. He has it all figured out. God's will is unhindered no matter what we do. He has everything handled because there's nobody that outranks our great God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this evening.